All right, come on in, everybody, and find a spot. We'll get started. And the guy's been handing out the one-page sheet that we'll, I'm pretty sure, look at today. I uh, want to just keep handing out that same one-page sheet for several weeks so everybody's confused. Didn't we finish the stupid one-page sheet a long time ago? Or you're guessing, will he get to at least one line on this one-page sheet this, this given week? So it is the same one that you've had the last couple of weeks, but they were handing them out for anybody that didn't bring yours from last time. Anybody need one? If you need one over here, put your hand up. Anybody over here? Everybody got? You guys did a great job. Thank you for that. Let me make some announcements, and then we'll pick up where we left off. But on the 10th of September, after we finish this series, uh, the, I'll be away Labor Day weekend. So that's the 3rd of September. But the following week, uh, September the 10th, we will start the newcomer's orientation. And that's four weeks. It's in a room right out the back door and across the hall. And I lead that. We give you a notebook of material. So for those of you that are new to the church, and you want to know more about it, we offer this a few times a year for that very purpose. It obligates you to nothing, and it is a small setting, so you can ask any questions that you might have. So I would urge you, if you're thinking, looking for a church home, and you're thinking this might be the place, then this will help you make that decision. So that'll start on the 10th, and it'll go for four weeks. We will have uh, some of our other guys uh, teaching in here at least one of those weeks, maybe two, uh, we will have instruction on our upcoming community groups in this, this second hour because some of you are not familiar with community groups and we want you to be and we're promoting them now because they're going to start anew in October, October 1st. Every two years we regroup the groups and they meet first and third uh, Sundays of the year and so we want to promote it. Uh, it's a great time for you to join. Those of you that are not familiar with what happens, you'll get some instruction about that, and we hope that that will result in some of you who have not uh, put your toe in the water uh, doing that. That would be a great thing. So the newcomer's orientation uh, this hour starts September the 10th and goes for four Sundays. Uh, some of our other guys will be teaching in here, and at least two of those, uh, two of those weeks, uh, it'll be on uh, what our community groups are. Our midweek program Midweek program starts on Wednesday, September 20th. And as Pastor Larry mentioned during the first hour announcements, the important thing for you to know about that this year is that although the format is all the same, we have our nursery and toddler and we have our kids uh, program, Pioneer Club, and we have high impact for teens and adult classes. And we've confirmed what the three adult classes are. Master Plan for Life, that's our uh, systematic theology for regular people. If you've never taken Master Plan for Life, that's the class you're supposed to take because it's one of the two classes that we ask everybody to take, if at all possible. So that's the one for you if you've never taken it. And we're also going to have a class through the uh, Book of Romans as well. That's going to be taught by Ryan Meyer from Detroit Baptist Seminary. And why is the third one escaping me? What's the third one? What is it? So Romans... Master Plan for Life, and what else? Yeah, gospel-centered uh, parenting. That's what it is. Thank you. 
And Pastor Larry's going to be leading that. That was him yelling from the back. So, yeah, gospel-centered parenting. So those of you that haven't taken Master Plan for Life, take that. Uh, those of you that are parents, gospel-centered parenting. And those of you that don't fit into either of those categories, there's the Romans class taught by uh, Ryan, Ryan Meyer. Those will be the three classes. But the big difference is that we're starting at 6 o'clock. We used to start Pioneer Club at 7, start Community Institute at 7.15, so it's a full hour earlier than we started. We're hoping that that will help people to get home earlier on a school night because we have heard that that's a deterrent for a number of people. But on the other end, 6 o'clock is fairly early. You're coming in from soccer practice or work or school or whatever it is. So we know it's, it's hard to balance that exactly. To help on the front end, knowing that people are running in from whatever, we're offering dinner every Wednesday night. So we will have the dinner here for you if you sign up every week letting us know that you want the dinner, you pay for it. I don't, we haven't set the price yet, but uh, it'll be reasonably priced and it'll be just stuff that we uh, bring in from the outside, uh, you know, pizza, tacos, subs, that kind of thing. But we'll have it here, we'll have it out for you starting at five o'clock so that you can skate in, you can come in with your family, it's there, you can get it quickly, you can eat, and then at six o'clock, each of you can go to your classes. So we're gonna try it, we'll see uh, how it goes, but please make note of that. We're going to send mailers around for our next outreach series. That next outreach series will start on October the 8th uh, in this hour, second hour, and it's called God's Design for Sexuality. And so be praying about that, be thinking about someone uh, perhaps you could invite to that. And then longer range, our next baptism is on November the 5th. So if you've never been baptized, you've got a couple of months to figure that out, two months to figure it out, three. And we would love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you about what the requirement is for baptism. We've got a one-page application at our Welcome Center. Ask them for that, fill it out, they'll get it to me, and then we'll go from there. All right, this series is The Personalities of Sin. You see on the top of that sheet that we have given out. And I've been making the case that we all have different ways of sinning. So we're all alike in the sense that, in two senses. One, that we are made in the image of God. So that's the good part that all of us have in common. And then we all, though, unfortunately, all also have in common that we have a sin nature. So both of us have both of those. We're made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. We also come into this world with a sin nature. And that is what you know about every person that comes into the world. For this series, though, I'm building off of that to now explore a bit of how it is that you and how it is that I characteristically express that sin nature. We've all got it. We all show it. We all display it in the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act, even in the way we feel. We don't express our emotions even properly. Uh, so that can be done in a sinful way. And I'm, I'm challenging us to think about the personality of our sin. And I've used the word personality because having been made in the image of God, that means that we have the, that means we have the components of personhood that God has. God is a person, 
We are persons made in His image, and theologians have identified in particular three faculties that humanity has that uh, give us this personal resemblance to God. The ability to think, the ability to choose, uh, to act, and the ability to feel. Mind, will, emotion. Intellectually, volitionally, and emotionally. We resemble God. But because of sin, all of that's tainted. The entire person is tainted. That's what theologians mean when they talk about total depravity. It doesn't mean everything that you did before you came to Christ was, uh, was completely sinful to the core. You sometimes did good things, but you never did those good things for good reason. You never did it for the right reason. It was always tainted in some way. The total part is sin has affected each part of the person, mind, will, emotion. But because we're all different, your sin will show up in one way and mine will show up in another way. So some people tend to sin more intellectually, some people tend to sin more volitionally, and some people more emotionally. But we all sin. And we all sin in all of those ways. But some people have more of the one than the other. So I've been encouraging you to, to think about that. And the reason I'm encouraging you to think about that is because you bring that baggage, that natural baggage, with you. You carry it around, thus the suitcases, your baggage. And, and what we want to do is we want to lay aside that baggage as we identify it and replace it with other characteristics. That's exactly what the Bible teaches we're to do. Put off and put on. But you're not going to put off if you don't recognize what needs to be put off. And my experience is most people have never done a baggage check. And every individual needs a baggage check, but most of us have never done one. And not only does every individual need to do a baggage check, every couple needs to do a baggage check. Think about what you've got when you get two people who get married and they each bring their baggage. So they each bring their sin baggage. They get, each got their characteristic ways of sinning. And nobody's ever challenged them to like look into the ways you sin. Both of you. And then, then let's look to replace that with godly characteristics. So having failed to do that, you may have Christian people who profess Christ who attend church. They mostly profess Christ and attend church with other people who've never done a baggage check. And so it never occurs to them to actually do that. So they just come into the, this new and most important of human relationships, marriage, and they've never done this, this check. What's going to happen there? Now, as Christians, for the, for the most part, they'll survive. They'll survive. You know, my experience in 40, you know, my whole 61 years have been in church, and for over 30 years of that in vocational ministry, and my observation is I haven't seen very many divorces. I've seen some. We've seen some in our church, but not many. Most people will survive. 
because they know God doesn't want them to get divorced. But will they thrive? Nah. They'll survive, but not thrive because they both got their baggage. And they've never and they've never checked it. So I bring in my baggage, Kim brings in her baggage, and I'm good with my baggage. And by nature, she's good with, with her baggage. And so the way we approach this is the other party needs to get used to my baggage. Deal with it. And not only deal with it, but actually, the baggage that I'm bringing into this marriage is superior to the baggage you're bringing in. You know, I've gotten to know your family a little bit, and there's some quirks there. I see where you picked up some of the junk you're carrying around. Surely you can see that what I'm carrying around is not as junky as your junk. So we would all be a lot better off if, if I were able to and you agreed that we would move you in my direction. Now, I, you know, we, we kind of chuckle, we laugh, but that is, that's what people do. This becomes, marriage becomes a contest to see who can get the upper hand, who can change whom, and then failing that, we just settle into a detente <laughs> and we just survive and God never intended marriage to be to be any of that he intended for our marriages to thrive and for for our relationships in general including and especially marriage to be relationships in which we sharpen one another we help each other identify the baggage that we're carrying around and replace it with with godly baggage but if you're never willing to see what yours is and what your characteristic ways of sinning are, then that will never happen. So I've had this happen dozens and dozens of times over the years. A couple comes to me or one of the, one of the spouses calls me and says, hey, I need marriage, we need marriage counseling. Most of the time, and I'm telling you that this is most of the time, most of the time it turns out the person who called does not want marriage counseling. They want counseling for their spouse. But they want to be there <laughs> to make sure it happens. Yeah, I'm not perfect. If I had a dollar for every time I heard somebody say, I'm not perfect. And I'm thinking, do you think that's a newsflash for me? <laughs> what kind of concession is that? I'm not perfect. Listen, brother, sister, you're not only not perfect, you ain't close. You got all kinds of stuff that you haven't even been willing to look at and needs to be looked at. And you need to have the humility to allow somebody else, somebody's else, point it out to you so that you can grow in Jesus. So it's far from I'm not perfect. We all got a long way to go, every one of us. And so we should come for that, but that's not mostly, most of the time, what we come for.
So what I'm saying here about personality of sin is another way of saying uh, what some theologians call your characteristic flesh. Now, some of you know that in the King James Version and, and in some translations of the Bible, it uses the word flesh, and it will use the word flesh in, I think, an unhelpful way because it's in context where it's talking about your sin nature. But it translates this Greek word sarx as flesh. Well, when it does that, it can confuse people, and it has confused people over the years to mean that my sin is somehow attached to my body, my flesh. I remember years ago I had one of the first pastors I had the first, at the first Baptist church I was ever a part of. You all know I grew up Pentecostal. So I was a young adult. I'm in this Baptist church, and I remember the pastor preaching on the flesh from the King James Version. And I remember him pinching himself and talking about, quote, this stinking flesh as if the body is the problem. But it's not a physical problem. Sin is a spiritual problem by definition. And so sarks, I think, is better translated sin nature. And when we talk about your characteristic flesh, it means your characteristic sin nature. How does your sin nature characteristically show up in your life? How does it look for you? How does it look for me? And, there's a, and there are varieties of that. It shows up in, in a number of different ways. All right. So that's your, that's your nature, your personality of sin. But you're also affected a second way, and that's where this sheet that you received on the way in and you've been lugging around for a few weeks now, if you'll take a look at that sheet, Under point 2B, there's not only by nature we sin as persons, intellectually, volitionally, and emotionally, but by nurture we emulate what we observed and experienced. So you've got your personality, then you've also got your experience. You've got your, the way you were nurtured, the way you were brought up. And you bring that in. So you get, and, and when I say you bring that in, into what? Any relationship? You brought that into your Christian life? When you got saved, at whatever age you got saved, I got saved at 19. So I had 19 years worth of, yes, my own personality, but I also had the stuff that I had observed in, in my home. Much of it good. But this side of heaven, there is no home where all of it's good. None. And so I'm going to emulate, tend to emulate what I observed, even the bad stuff. That's what I mean by nurture. And here are examples. If you grew up in a, a boisterous, chaotic home, you might be comfortable with loud and out of control. And think about if you married somebody who's like organized and quiet. Well, okay. Here we go. Now, I grew up in, nah, not, you know, bo yeah, boisterous and chaotic. I was going to say not so much. Yeah, so much. The boisterous part was not, you know, screaming at each other, but we yelled. We yelled to communicate. If someone was upstairs, we yelled upstairs. 
Most of the time, we didn't bother to go to the bottom of the stairs. We just yelled from wherever we were. I could make my voice project from the basement to the upstairs, okay? My dad, my dad called me loud mouth. I'm still traumatized by this, can you tell? Because I had and have that. Comes in handy to be a speaker, but nonetheless, I could yell from the basement to the upstairs and they could hear me. So we yelled like that. We weren't yelling at each other, we were yelling for each other, but it was just a habit that we had. So I marry Kim. Y'all know Kim, she's very quiet, very, she's very meek, very sweet. And I remember the first time I yelled for her. She said to me, we don't yell. That's what she said, we don't yell. Now, Kim has what is, you know, sometimes called in literature the, the royal we, the magisterial we. Like, what she means is she doesn't do something, which means, by definition, we don't, okay? And she's recognized that, and she gets a kick out of the fact that she has this royal we. But she just says to me, we don't yell. And I said, we don't? And she says, no. And I said, okay, okay, why don't we? And she says, well, you know, my, and she tells me, and so I, I acquiesce. We, so we don't yell upstairs, we don't yell downstairs. We just text each other. <laughs> That's how we communicate. <laughs> so Kim says, we don't yell. I, uh, when we were growing up, we said, stupid. And that was just, you know, if we were, you know, well, that's stupid. Or you're, and sometimes we'd say, you're stupid, because we're mad at you. And we'd say that. And I did that early on in our marriage, and Kim said, we don't say stupid. And I said, oh, okay, we don't. And then I said, why? And then she starts to tell me, and, and I said, well, that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Had to get one last stupid in. <laughs> so we have a list of rules in our house that are called Kim's Rules. And it includes, we don't yell, we don't say stupid, we got a bunch. And it's actually made our house very, very calm and peaceful, and I'm very thankful for it. I've had to teach her some stuff along the way, too. I'll have to get her permission to tell you the things that I've had to, had to teach her as well. But so there's that boisterous thing, chaotic. It's just, you know, things aren't in order. My, part of it was how many people we had in the house. We had uh, six of us and a small very small house. It had these three levels to it, but it was really tiny. The, the, the upstairs was not made to be an upstairs. It was an attic. But we made it into some bedroom, a couple bedrooms. Um, I, think, I think it was 700 square feet of living space for the six of us. I think that's what it was. That was the main floor. And then we had a basement that was really like a cellar. But anyway, we made use of it. And uh, so... It was kind of chaotic because as I'm trying to go to school and you're trying to do homework, you really didn't have anywhere to do that. And everybody's doing their thing and it's, there's just not that much space. So it's a wonder that I graduated from high school. But by God's grace, I did. So boisterous and chaotic kind of described what I brought into our marriage. Kim, on the other hand, had this calm house. Her mom, especially her mom, has always been very calm. And uh, everything was, you know, for the most part, uh, orderly. In her home, there were six kids. 
and the two parents, but everybody's intact, meaning uh, everybody's alive and married. If they're married, they're married to the pers- their spouse, and that's that. There are no divorces. There are no life-habituating kinds of sins that people are dealing with, no kinds of habits. Everybody has a job, holds down a job, all of that. So I, I marry into her home, and I see a dad and a mom together, and I see the six kids, and the six kids are all Christians. And then a few years into our marriage, they're all married by that time, and they're all married to, to Christians, and they've all stayed together. Well, when she and I started dating, I took her to my house, and I started taking her to events and things, and family events. And Kim is saying, now, who is that? And who are they attached to? And I say, well, they used to be attached, but they're not anymore because they're divorced. And he wasn't around for about an eight-year period because he was in prison for a period of time. And that was because he had a, a, a drug addiction, and it ended up in armed robbery. And so I'm just trying to clue her in. And when I would do this and I would clue her into my family, it was always the jaw drop look that she had like what why did I agree to go out with this person so I call our getting together the two of us Um, her family is the Ozzy and Harriet you guys remember them the Nelson family and my family is um, is the Adams family so the Adams family meets the Nelsons and you bring it together and you got to try to figure it out. Boisterous. But what about this and, and chaotic? A hypocritical Christian home. You see that I've got Christian there in quotation marks? Hypocritical meaning what you see at church is not what you saw at home. So if you grew up with that, there's there's a decent chance that you're going to emulate that hypocrisy that you saw. That for you, church is something you do. It's motions that you go through. But in terms of actually living out these values and making changes, and week after week, maybe the pastor is saying, listen, we got to repent and we got to go in a new direction, but that like never happens. And that's what the Christian life looked like to you. We had a guy in our church, this church, years ago. He's moved on, frankly, because this got the best of him. But he heard me saying this kind of stuff over the years. And he made a foray into trying to make, looking to make some root changes, including from things that he saw in his family. And he told me about how he grew up, and he grew up in a family where his dad was a deacon, was a treasurer, very involved, prominent family in the church. This guy says to me, we li- I'm quoting, we lie all the time. My parents lie all the time. I learned to lie from my parents. That's scary, isn't it? But that's what he, he was in a hypocritical Christian home. 
And he carried that lying habit into his adult life and into his marriage. He carried it into church. And we met together, he made, he made some headway. I was very, very hopeful. He never reverted back, I don't believe, fully to what he was before, but he just couldn't quite get over the hump and he ended up moving on. But it's an example of somebody who grew up in a hypocritical Christian home. Or a people-pleasing home. You saw people who their goal was to make sure that they were highly regarded by other people. And so they wanted to please others, and so they would say, not necessarily lie, but they would say whatever needed to be said in order to look good to, to other people. They would volunteer for things. Volunteer for too many things. All because they wanted to please other people. Or a condescending, critical home. Your parents, and then you as you got older, learned from them to criticize other people. So your parents talked in front of you in ways that slandered others, that brought them down. Talked about regularly what other people did wrong, should do better, all of that. And so you created this superior attitude about yourself that you're in a position to criticize other people, and that's what I mean by the condescending piece. You condescend. You're looking down on other people when you do that. There's a, a, a big difference between an observation and just negative, slanderous criticism. Constructive observations are made to the right people, not just thrown out there at home to whoever happens to be within earshot, but made to the person who you can help with that observation. And secondly, it's accompanied with a suggestion. Go to the right person, and then if you have a suggestion to help them. So, there's something that I can improve. Lord knows there's a bunch of stuff I can improve. Then come to me with it. Don't tell everybody else what a crumb I am. Come to me, and then if you have a suggestion, then by all means. And then I can either take it or not. If you don't have a suggestion, okay, just have the humility to say, you know, this just doesn't seem like it's the best way, but I don't really know exactly how to do it. All right, that's good too. But don't just go saying it to other people. In your home, you will create in that home a mindset among people that we're superior and it's okay for us to criticize others. Or an anxious, worried home. When things happened within your home, how were, they, how were they handled? Did your parents wig out? When you were a kid, did you, were you regularly reminded that we have financial problems and we're not sure if we can make ends meet this month? I learned when I was an adult that my parents regularly had financial problems. But I didn't know that when I was a kid because my parents did me the favor of not putting that worry on me as a kid. So I didn't grow up in an anxious, worried home. But I know lots of people who have. 
and that's the way they react to adverse circumstances. They get anxious and they worry because that's what, they, what they've seen. You guys see that that list could just go on? And so the idea for you, for me, is to think about that. Think about what it is that you observed, what it is that has helped shape you then into who you are. You've got your nature, that includes your personality, you sin in particular ways, characteristically, and you have your nurture, and here are just some examples to get the juices flowing for you to think about that. And then point C, middle of the page, we bring these habits into our relationships. We bring them into our relationship with the Lord, our Christian walk, and we bring them into our relationships then with others, particularly with others in, in our home, in our homes. All right, if you have your Bible, then I want to turn to Galatians chapter 5. And to remind us of what it was we saw during the series Change of Heart. And that is these characteristic ways that we sin in, in the way we think, in the way we talk, in the way we feel, in, the, in, the, in our behavior, in our choices. Do you guys remember from that series Change of Heart that we had that in the last week I gave out another single page sheet and it had three trees on it and the one tree was the cross in the middle but then on each side you had one tree that was bearing good fruit and another tree that was barren dead fruit and that the point of that illustration was that the, the fruit whether good or bad was coming from the root and I said during that, that most of the time what we do is we handle our problems at the above the ground level. We're handling the fruit, but we're not getting to the root that's producing. So all the stuff that I've talked about to this point is above ground fruit stuff. And if you've got a barren, if you've got a barren tree, if your life is bringing forth bad fruit, then you want to get to the root of why that's happening. And repentance through Christ is what changes that, gets to the heart of the matter, and produces different fruit. But we tend to do this. We, we don't get to the root. We don't even think about the root. We only think about the presenting problem. That is the problem that presents itself to us. And if we do come for counseling, that's what we present. Here's my problem. I've got an anger problem. And so dealing with your anger problem means, unfortunately, too many times, doing anger, anybody know how to fill in the blank? Anger what? Management? Anger management. But here's the thing. God is not into sin management. God is about sin eradication, mortification of the flesh. That's what the, that's what the Puritans used to call it, mortifying, that is killing the flesh, killing the sin nature, 
killing that off to replace it with spiritual root that produces spiritual fruit. But we are usually up here, above ground. So what is the, what is the root problem? Where does it come from? Verse 16, Galatians chapter 5. Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You may have a translation that says the flesh, but it's sin nature. Now notice there, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify. You see what it is? It's the desires. It's the desires that are the underground. They are the root. What we want, what we desire. And when what we want and what we desire doesn't happen the way we want or desire, or doesn't happen in the measure that we want it to happen, or in the way that we want it to happen, then we have the above ground manifestations. We sin. Verse 17, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. The Spirit desires, you could supply the word, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Now let's just stop there for a minute. As Christians, we are spiritually, somewhat spiritually schizophrenic. And here's what I mean. You still have the vestige of the sin nature, but you've got the new nature. And there are times where I, where you, manifest the one rather than the other. All of us do. So, technically speaking, you always do what you want. Because the sin nature still residing within you wants to do this sinful thing. And so you do. Or to react in this sinful way, and so you do. But Paul here is saying... What ought to dominate your life is the new nature. And that's the dominant desire of every true Christian, is that the Spirit is what is manifest in my life. Now, how do I know whether I'm manifesting the one or the other? It goes on famously to say in verse 19, here are the acts of the sinful nature. And it gives, you know, a lot of sins that are very obvious, but then it's got, you know, in the middle of page, or excuse me, verse 20, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, factions, envy. So you got, you know, drunkenness and orgies, and then in verse 19, sexual immorality and debauchery. You know, if you just read selectively, you can say, okay, I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> Those are not my characteristic sins. But, you know, what about discord? What about jealousy? What about intense anger, selfish ambition, envy? And then notice at the end of verse 19, or excuse me, the end of verse 21, in the middle of verse 21, forgive me, it says, and the like. So you've got this list. And the list includes a bunch of things that most of us here would say, okay, not me. But then it's got a bunch of other stuff, okay, yeah, maybe you. 
Perhaps me. Perhaps us. But then, just to make sure we cover, Paul says, and the like, things like this. This is not an exhaustive list. The idea is that you go through here and you say, am I any of those? And if I'm not any of those, I'm getting close to Jesus. Status. No, this is just to give you an idea of the acts of the sinful nature. The, the root, the desires that then come forth in different kinds of activities and reactions. But in contrast to that, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, given what was said about the acts of the sinful nature, here's a list and things like these. And then when Paul says, against such things, I don't take those nine things to be the only manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit. That like the acts of the sinful nature, these are representative of the kinds of things that come forth from a person who is walking in, in the Spirit. So I'm urging you to think about you Think about how God has wired you personally and how you therefore sin in your personality and also what you are carrying around with you, not only in your nature but also your nurture, that show up in your life, show up in your relationships. And then you look at this, these lists and you say, okay, where am I usually? Am I in the acts of the sinful nature or am I in the fruit of the Spirit? And we want to rid ourselves of those things that are the acts of the sinful nature. Now, one last thing for today. And that is, sometimes people mistake, for lack of a better term, temperament for being spiritually controlled. And somebody can have a, just a natural temperament that is just calm, kind, introverted maybe. They're not in your face. Let me, I, let me ask you, a person like that, a person who is just naturally not an in-your-face kind of person, can that person hate your guts? Internally, right? They can look and act very sweet. And we can mistake that for spiritual growth. When in fact, it's just their natural disposition. And internally, they're still sinning. Now, I said I have to ask Kim for permission. Just between us in our final 90 seconds, okay? Kim is really, I mean, I'm really high on Kim. And she is, she is one of the sweetest people ever. And she is a godly gal. I could just go on. And she has grown in the Lord in our 38 years together. And she's helped me grow in the Lord in our 38 years together. But she and I have talked about what I just said here. And Kim is a naturally gentle person. She's just naturally that way. She grew up in a home where it was calm. So she's calm. 
but she has enough spiritual awareness about herself to understand that the fact that she is naturally these things doesn't mean that that's a supernatural fruit in her life. That she can be externally all of that and at the same time internally. And I'll just give you one example and then I'll just shut up because I've already said too much about my wife. When Annie was a baby, Annie was a handful. She was more of a handful than our firstborn. Our firstborn was a handful just because she wouldn't sleep and she was colicky. But Lainey, if you told her to do something, she did it. Annie, as a baby, and then on up into her teen years, even as a young adult, we had lots of discussions about why she ought to do what I'm telling her. But we early on took it on. They're different. That's okay. God made them different. And so we were able to have very fruitful talks, and God worked in the heart, and we thank God for that. And, you know, um, they, they are where they are with the Lord, and we thank Him for that. But when she was little, Kim spent most of the time with her, much more than I did. And she was driving Kim crazy with her defiance, and Kim found herself angry. And yet she's got this baby who's angry. So we got a book called The Heart of Anger. We have it in our resource center. But it's designed to help a parent with their kid's anger. So Kim's reading it to get help with Annie's anger. And as she's reading it, she realizes how angry she is. She's angry because Annie's angry all the time. But the way Kim would manifest that anger would not be the way the more extroverted person, the more, but nevertheless she had it. You see what I'm saying? And by God's grace, he used that to show her something that was less obvious for her than for other people. And so we can make the mistake of thinking that our temperament is a fruit of the Spirit. I'll talk with you next week about how you know the difference. Is it a fruit of the Spirit? or is it just a natural inclination? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you again for the blessings of this day and the opportunity to consider how you've made us and how you've wired us and how that affects us in an ongoing way. Um, we carry our nature with us. We carry with us the baggage of our nurture as well. And so help me, help all of us to have the humility to be willing to look at ourselves honestly. And Lord, help us to be motivated by a desire to change, to be indeed conformed to the image of Jesus so that we speak, talk, act, feel as he does in the situations in which you placed us. Help us to practice that this week. We ask you to help us to remember that we are your ambassadors in the situations to which you have called us. Grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.